You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey, everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker. And this week, we're bringing you two of our favorite stories that have aired in years past, from scientist Aditi Nadkarni and comedian Wyatt Cenac. In both of these stories we're sharing today, our storytellers are nailing the assignment, getting an A+, or just generally overachieving. Our first story is from Aditi Nadkarni. It was recorded in July 2013 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme that night was Close to Death. Before I tell you the incident that I'm going to describe today, let me tell you a little about myself so it would help to know why this sort of shit happens to me. <laughs> so, um, it, if you haven't noticed, I'm Indian. That's, that's part of the explanation. But um, also, you know, being an Indian, you have 1.5 billion people who are very willing to replace you if you don't prove your worth, and so that makes all of us very competitive. Sometimes in situations where you don't need to be competitive. Uh, like, for example, I'll very rarely go to the gym, but when I do, I'm always like on the elliptical looking over my shoulder at the level that the other person is on, and then I'll go one level up. <laughs> It helps if they're old and unfit, so that's it. Uh, so this used to be much worse about 10 years ago when I was a graduate student, and I was fresh off the boat from India. I didn't know a whole lot about working in a research lab, and I had just joined this very competitive lab. Um, and I was, you know, uh, I wanted to prove a point. I wanted to show everybody that, hey, you know, I deserve this. I deserve to be part of this lab. and. This was not easy because there was a senior graduate student. His name, from now on, I will refer to him as the Phil. <laughs> Phil the Great was quite a bit of competition. He was a senior graduate student. He had identified uh, a gene, a new gene, and he had characterized its function. Uh, it basically means it was a big deal. And he had just been interviewed. The week that I got accepted into this lab, he had just been interviewed by Toledo Blade. Um, it was Toledo, Ohio. And Toledo Blade is a big thing in Toledo, Ohio. Just take my word for it. <laughs> so he was interviewed by the Toledo Blade. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the Phil was uh, the talk of the town. Everybody at University of Toledo was like, oh my god, the Phil got into, you know, 
the newspaper i wanted to be in the newspaper i was a fresh you know graduate student and i didn't know anything but i still wanted to you know be famous and be known and i was just this newbie and everybody was just trying to get me out of the way or watching over my shoulder making sure i wasn't like electrocuting myself or something <laughs> so one day i decided i'm going to do something you know i have to like you know start my own project and so i decided i'm going to take the gene that phil made and make a mutation in it and then see what happens to that gene it's the elliptical all over again and i just you know one up so i decided okay and you know if you tell somebody who has even a year of experience working in a genetics lab they'll say oh that's easy like you know take some genetic material draw on a pcr make a mutation but to a fresh graduate student this seemed like a you know a big thing like it was a big plan um i thought i was a genius to have come up with it but i wanted to keep this whole thing a secret so i started working after hours which is like after 6 everybody used to be gone and stuff but i was very excited about this project now when this particular incident happened that was the day that it was a pretty big milestone for my experiment i knew i had gotten the mutation but i needed to check it and in order to check it i had to put it into bacteria and then take those bacteria and grow them on plates now if the mutation was there the bacteria would grow in colonies on the plate the next day so all i needed to do all that stood between me and that mutation was plating those things on the plate and i was working after hours it was about midnight i hadn't eaten anything you know i was excited and sometimes the excitement blends with the hypoglycemia <laughs> it does it really does i mean in science happens a lot so you know i was uh, working and i was so excited i forgot that you know all i'd had was cereal for breakfast and hadn't eaten anything so in order to do this what you do is you have a bunsen burner make sure it's sterile so that the other naughty bacteria don't grow on your plate instead of your bacteria and you have this beaker of alcohol in which you dip the spreader and then you run it through a flame and then you spread your bacteria pretty simple right well i got everything started i chose a nice area you know put a bunsen burner took my beaker but i was hypoglycemic and so instead of dipping the glass rod into the beaker of alcohol and flaming it i flamed it and then dipped it into the alcohol <laughs> and just like that like one splinter of glass hit that beaker of alcohol and it was a monstrous beaker in hindsight i don't know why i needed such a big beaker just to do <laughs> but you know i used a big beaker it was suddenly in flames and this big orange flame just was standing in front of me and you know how there is this moment where you are like i'm not a genius i'm an idiot just save me <laughs> that was my moment and uh it was awful suddenly i realized you know this was midnight nobody's here there's a beaker on fire and i realized that i had not chosen a very good area to do this because there were electrical wires everywhere and there was a live gas line and there were papers hanging it was a you know very old biomedical lab you have like papers hanging from everywhere and then this big flame trying to like you know light everything up so i you know in if i were not hypoglycemic maybe i would have like picked something heavy and you know like a glass plate and put it on the beaker and it would have been gone 
but i just couldn't think of anything and i was so hungry that i was thinking of donuts and i was thinking of the fire and i just didn't know what was going on so and i didn't want to die in a beaker fire <laughs> who wants that right but i couldn't just leave with a beaker on fire so i went to the phone the lab phone and i dialed the emergency phone and i can't remember what i said there was like this flood of words um in a very thick indian accent and i was like oh, there's a beaker is on fire and she said oh, do you want me to call call code orange and i was like well, i don't know what code orange is i was like okay okay fine and my eyes were on the beaker so i hung up and went to the beaker and started like moving papers away and moving the wires away i tried touching the beaker which was stupid i burned my fingers <laughs> and then i backed off because i realized how dangerous the situation was and i don't know it seemed like it must have been 20 seconds but it was probably more than that and suddenly half a dozen firemen dressed in like complete gear i mean to somebody from india they looked like astronauts they were wearing masks and they had hoses and stuff and there's a beaker with a fire and i was like oh my god and they were like ma'am we need you to get out of the way and so i you know i tried to move but i wanted to say it's just a beaker fire and um but they were trying to ignore me and i felt pretty stupid for having done this so they were like man ma'am you need to get away and what is what are the contents of this beaker and i don't know if you've noticed this like law enforcement and people who are in control they use this unnecessarily formal terminology what are the contents of this beaker <laughs> and when somebody says that you forget what's in the beaker and so <laughs> it happened to me So I said something which was between ethanol and ethyl alcohol and he looked at me stammering and he is talking into this radio and he goes there is an unidentified chemical in the beaker <laughs> and I was like no no there is not I will identify it <laughs> and at that point they are just like shushing me and moving me away and then they wear these thick gloves that they have and they pick the beaker up and they take it and put it in the middle of the hallway and then they convene and are talking to each other what to do about this unidentified chemical on fire and now that it's in the middle of the hallway it looks like a aromatherapy candle because <laughs> there's nothing around it it's not going to do anything so i'm looking at it and i'm like okay i'm okay now i'm fine and suddenly i'm like oh the glass cabinet that's going to have the glass bit so while these people the officers are talking i go to the glass cabinet take a glass plate and i run and put it on the beaker and the fire is gone <laughs> and the beaker the fire you know the firemen are just like oh, okay <laughs> and there is this one guy who is with them but he seems you know like he is dressed in pajamas and he's like taking notes i assumed it was a safety officer you know i mean he's taking notes he asked me what's your name ma'am and i gave him my name he wrote down the name of the lab and what were you working on and so he wrote all that down and just as soon as you know they had arrived they were gone i went into the coffee room and stole somebody's protein bar <laughs> and then i felt better i mean not about stealing but just having <laughs> just having eaten i felt better and then i came back and then again i was in my mutant gene mode so i did what i was supposed to do i plated everything put it into the incubator and then went home 
and i said to myself you know if there are colonies on the plate tomorrow none of this shit is going to matter i don't have to tell anybody about this <laughs> i mean why does anyone have to know about this it, the fire is gone nobody died so the next morning when i wake up i'm all about the colonies you know i'm thinking oh do i have colonies maybe i have my mutant gene so i go to lab you know really like excited and on the way to the lab i stop at the incubator and there were colonies beautiful sexy fat plump colonies as far as colonies go fat and plump is sexy so then and then as i'm going to my lab to announce to my boss that you know i did this i see that there is this little uh, crowd of people gathered at the entrance of my lab and i was like maybe they saw the colonies too because <laughs> at this point i'm just thinking of my own genius right so i go and dug is standing there dug my advisor and he is laughing so hard that he has tears coming down his eyes <laughs> and i was like maybe he's just happy that i got a mutant gene <laughs> so he looks at me and i go did you see them and dug goes yes i saw and i was like isn't it amazing and he was like really why is it amazing and uh, i look confused and i realized from the corner of my eye that there is this roll of paper that's being passed around and all these other people in a crowd and i start to figure out that maybe they're all not happy about my colonies and so i look around and dug goes oh my god she has no idea and i was like no idea about what and he takes the newspaper and hands it to me and among the headlines of the toledo blade <laughs> it says campus officer extinguishes beaker fire <laughs> and i look at the article and i say to myself i really hope my name isn't in there and my name was in there and i was humiliated and it said there that i was doing this at midnight it explained exactly what i was doing <laughs> and upon reading this i had to save face the competitive edge was still there so i go he did not extinguish it i did <laughs> i put the glass plate on it they were just they were talking about someone and they just laughed they laughed they were like really it's not even about that your name is in the paper <laughs> So I became pretty famous for this, right? Because I mean, I set fire to a beaker. They invite, they named me Pyro Aditi. <laughs> That was my gangster name. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then uh, they invited me to the university's um, safety class. <laughs> I was in a keynote speaker at their safety class. That was nice. I mean, that's pretty important, right? So anyways, but you know, there's a positive spin on this. The colonies that I told you about, that funded my grant and got me my PhD. So I mean, I deserved the PhD, you know, even though I set fire to a beaker. but just for your entertainment i'm going to tell you this if you go to toledo blade website and you search my name it comes up <laughs> so have fun with that thanks
Aditi Nadkarni. Aditi is a biomedical scientist, market research and business strategy consultant, artist, and storyteller who is passionate about science awareness, human and civil rights, access to education, and bridging disparities in healthcare. As always, remember you can check out storyquieter.org for upcoming live shows all around the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., as well as opportunities to learn how to tell your own science story through one of our storytelling workshops. For more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and now TikTok. Follow us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Wyatt Sinak. It was recorded in May 2016 at the Green Space in New York City. This show was produced in partnership with Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson. I I grew up in Texas, which... Uh, for those of you who don't know, Texas is one of those states that gets to determine what your children's textbooks are like. It's true. So now if you open your kid's textbook and there's something in there about intelligent design, you're welcome. <laughs> it's weird. Intelligent design, it's in textbooks now, and that's such a strange thing because I feel like it invalidates all the work of talented paleontologists like William Hanna and Joseph Barbera. <laughs> Through their work with the Flintstones, you know, realize that dinosaurs don't talk, well, brontosauruses don't talk, other dinosaurs, a pterodactyl that's also a lamp can talk, but <laughs> not Dino. Which, before any of you write in and say, hold on a second, Dino wasn't a brontosaurus, he was a snorkosaurus. That's true, but the taxonomy is basically the same. <laughs> I say all this to say, I grew up in Texas, and science was not one of those big things for me. My high school, science wasn't that big of a deal. Like, we had biology class, and we learned how to dissect a frog to use it for meat. And, you know, we had chemistry where we learned the compounds of the periodic table that we might need to use if we wanted to make our own ammunition. <laughs> but for the most part, science wasn't that big of a deal. And that, that's not to say that Texas people don't care about science or even that at my high school we didn't care about science. We did. It, it, you know, my high school, it was, it was a progressive place in its own way, and I learned a lot. It, it was actually in high school where I learned that sexuality is a fluid concept. And I went to a Catholic all-boys high school, and a priest taught me that. <laughs> oh, it, not just me. He taught a whole classroom of boys. Mm. 
he was my English teacher? Still not help. Here's the thing. So I had an English teacher who one day decided to explain to us that sexuality, it's fluid and that there is a spectrum. And he said, you know, people aren't just gay or straight. It's not as cut and dry as that. It's, it's a spectrum. And to think about it as like a scale from one to ten and say one might be all the way gay and ten might be all the way straight. He said, most people fall somewhere in the middle there. And he said, you know, a seven might be if you were, say, sitting on the toilet and decided to stick your finger up your own butt. <laughs> this is a real thing he said. <laughs> and I'm sure there are some of you right now that are thinking, well, wait, if that's a seven, what's your eight and nine? <laughs> For me in that moment, I was thinking, wait a minute. I've been to masses where you were handing out communion. <laughs> and I also don't know what this has to do with the James Joyce book we were reading. <laughs> so my high school, not the most science-heavy high, uh, high school. It was uh, more, we were more into service. And that was one of those things, to graduate high school, we all had to complete 40 hours of community service which is kind of a nice thing to do at an all-boys Catholic prep school. Uh, it's a nice thing. It's a nice way to give back to the community, but it's also a nice way to prepare your students for the day that they get arrested for a fraternity prank gone wrong, <laughs> which is going to happen. But so we all had to do community service, and I remember they gave us this list of different places that you could choose to, to serve at, and there are places like soup kitchens and old folks' homes, and full disclosure, I did not want to do any of that because I was 17 and I was selfish, but I also felt like I live in Texas. I don't know why we're serving hot soup to people <laughs> in a place that's already hot. <laughs> and I don't want to go work at an old folks home and read to old ladies because that feels a little like driving Miss Daisy cosplay. So I just wasn't into it, and I, I had to find something, and I found one thing on this list, and it was a huge list, and I found one thing, and I was like, oh, okay, this, this one is for me. This is the thing I want to do, because I've, I've fancied myself a, a man of reason. And this was, it was a place of science that was on this list, and I knew it was a place of science because it was called The Science Place. <laughs> And I wasn't sure what the science place was. I really hoped that it was maybe a lab where I could work with a scientist that maybe everyone else had just kind of written off as mad. <laughs> but I knew they were just driven. And then maybe I could work with that scientist, maybe, you know, work on some experiments. Maybe I bring a bag of spiders and we have a lab accident. <laughs> And I become the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> you might be saying, hold on a second, Wyatt. What do spiders have to do with becoming the Hulk? Look, I'm not the scientist. I was just a kid who made a bad investment on some spiders. <laughs> the science place was not a laboratory. It was a children's museum. And given what I told you about Texas and how we're helping your textbooks... You should know, the Science Place, it was not a fancy museum. It was a rinky-dink little place that had some geodes 
and then a bunch of animatronic dinosaurs that didn't really work all the time. So much so that when we would have to explain to children, we would say, well, when the dinosaurs went extinct, so too did the technicians <laughs> and make the Tyrannosaurus Rex's head move. But so we were there, and so we had to give tours. And we had to give tours at the science place. And I was mainly stationed in the health sciences room. And the health sciences room was just a room dedicated to teaching children the dangers of drugs and alcohol. And they would do that. They just had a bunch of photos around of, like, what your lungs look like and then what your lungs would look like if you were smoking and, like, cirrhosis of the liver and all great things to send an eight-year-old home thinking about. <laughs> and so that was mainly what was there. But the one centerpiece, there was a, a driving simulator. And the driving simulator, it uh, was a simulator to show you how you would drive if you were drunk. And to a 17-year-old, I didn't see it as much as a simulator as I saw it as a video game. <laughs> because the way it would work, you would get in, and you would get in the car, and then you would punch in your gender and your height and your weight, and then you'd, uh, before you started driving, they would ask you, like, how many beers would you like? And so you put in a number, and then it'd ask you, would you like some harder alcohol? And you put in a number, and it'd kind of show you what you could choose from. And then it was like, how about some weed, some Coke? <laughs> Which I don't know how eight-year-olds knew all about that, but everything about it seemed like a setup to me. <laughs> but so you put all this stuff in, and then you get to drive, and then depending on how drunk or high you are, it affects how the wheel moves. Like the wheel will get loose and then it'll get like really stiff and the brakes won't work sometimes. And sometimes you put on the gas and it'll just floor it. And you really have to work really hard and pay attention so that you don't crash. And the moment that you would crash, the screen would just flash at you and you would get reprimanded with this message about the dangers of drinking and driving. And that would happen anytime you crashed whether you crashed after a minute or whether you crashed after an hour. Which I kind of feel like if you did it for an hour, I feel like you shouldn't get a reprimand. You, <laughs> you should get like just a, like a wow. <laughs> we got lucky. Let's not do that again. Also, let's maybe not drink so far away from home. And that was the thing, no matter how long you drove, like the idea was to get home, but you never got home. And so I started to wonder, could you get home? Like, can you win this game? Is there like a kill screen that's like where you don't get killed? Like a, like, you know, like a video game version of a kill screen. And, I, and so now this became my experiment. And week after week, instead of helping children, <laughs> I would climb into the simulator and I would try to see if I could beat it. And I started out and I was like, you know what, what I'll do is I'll be the biggest person I can be. I'll be a seven foot tall man, like a seven foot tall heavy set man, and I'll just have one beer. <laughs> Let's see what I can do. And I was like, could I drive for five minutes? And I could drive for five minutes. Could I drive for 10? Yeah, I could do 10, 15, 20. And I could drive for a really long time. 
And then I never got anywhere. And you can't just pull the car over and be like, I'm done. Like, even if you try to do that, it still crashes. And the screen flashes at you and is like, this is the dangers of drinking and driving. And to me, I was like, no, wait a minute. Like, you're telling me that a seven-foot-tall, 300-pound man can't have one beer? <laughs> like, I'm basically Shaquille O'Neal right now. And you're saying I can't handle a beer? I handled the Eastern Conference. <laughs> so then it became a challenge. And I was like, well, what, what could, how could Shaquille O'Neal drive on two beers? Or how could Shaquille drive on like three beers and a couple shots of whiskey and maybe some weed? And the thing that started happening, I never got home, but I got really good at driving as drunk Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> so then I found myself thinking, well, who else could I drive really well drunk as? And I was like, what if I was a tiny lady? What if I was like Mary Lou Retton? <laughs> and so I punched that in. And I got really good at driving as a four foot tall, 90 pound coked out lady. <laughs> and then I just started to see like, who else could I drive as? And I started just inputting different people. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait a minute, this is the scientific method. I get it now. <laughs> this is the experimentation phase, got it. And I just kept doing it. And let me just say, at that time in my life, I didn't drink, I didn't do drugs, but I got really interested in trying to prepare myself for the time when I could do all of that. <laughs> And not just do it, that just in case if I wanted to go all out with it, if I wanted to become a junkie, I could still become the kind of junkie that other junkies would trust to get them home safely. <laughs> yeah, I might steal your stereo to sell it for drugs, but I'll get you home to the shelf where it used to be. And I got really good. I, I, I graduated high school, and I graduated high school with this sense that I'm a really great drunk driver. <laughs> which I feel like was not the intended purpose that they had when they made that machine. But I felt like, you know what? I never found that mad scientist. I became the mad scientist, and I gave myself superpowers and as an adult, I, like, trust me, I am an amazing, I could drive drunk so well. But at the same time, I also walked away realizing, you know what, this is my gift. This is, I've seen enough comic book movies, I've read enough comic books to know, this is my great power. <laughs> and with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> a responsibility that you don't have in a cab unless you throw up in that cab. <laughs> Which then it's only just throw $20, get out really fast and run away. All right, thank you very much.
That was Wyatt Cenac. Wyatt Cenac is a comedian and former correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. You may also know him from his HBO show, Problem Areas. The Story Collider is so grateful to Aditi and Wyatt for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with managing producer Misha Gajewski and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, and operations manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me and my Story Collider co-founder, Ben Lilly. Our theme music is by Ghost. Until next week, thanks for listening. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.